Today, I want to talk about something near and dear to the pilgrim's heart, heresy. They were accused of it, avoided it, accused others of it, and ultimately succumbed to it. This morning, I want to talk about a modern-day heresy, and that is Christian nationalism. After the 2020 election, many of us experienced a form of whiplash. January 6th happened, and the Republican Party was overrun by election deniers who sought to overturn our democratic system of government. For many of us, it was hard to believe. I remember a lot of conversations like, is nothing sacred? Isn't nothing more American than democracy and the right to vote? The readiness of a huge part of our country to happily throw away democracy was and is objectively frightening. But you can't understand why it happened without understanding Christian nationalism. In an overarching way, Christian nationalism is the idea that our nation was founded as a Christian country, blessed by God, and that it needs to return to its Christian roots in order to regain that blessing. Now, a few things about that. First, we were not founded as a Christian nation. Many of the founders were deists, which meant they believed in a God that created the world and then just kind of checked out. That is not a mainstream idea today. And many other founders had and this is truly disturbing to the religious right today, Unitarian beliefs. John Adams, Paul Revere, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin all denied the divinity of Jesus. Jesus to them was not anyone's Lord and Savior. And George Washington, although not a Unitarian, would literally get up in the middle of church and leave when they gave communion. So distasteful was he of that practice. As Unitarian Universalists, many of these founders were our direct or indirect spiritual ancestors. They are not the spiritual ancestors of the religious right, nor were the founders mostly religious conservatives, no matter how much the religious right may say that they are. Secondly, the Christianity that Christian nationalists wish to establish in the United States is not traditional, old-fashioned Christianity, but a modern and radical reinterpretation of it. This is crucial. It is a movement that arose to protect the evangelical subculture from what it perceived as government intrusion during the 1960s and 1970s. Now, many on the religious right will tell you that it began and their movement began because of abortion. That they were so appalled by Roe versus Wade in 1973 that they stood up in a mighty righteous fury to take back their country from the godless heathens threatening unborn life. But this is a lie. Or at least it is drastically revisionist history. While many today earnestly believe this and care deeply about the unborn, it was not 
how Christian nationalism or the religious right more generally began in this country. History tells a very different story. For in fact, for most of American history, anti-abortion advocates were Catholics and even progressives, not evangelicals. In 1967, six years, just six years before Roe versus Wade, the most progressive abortion law in the country was signed by then California Governor Ronald Reagan. In 1968, five years before Roe, perhaps the most influential evangelical preacher of the 20th century, Reverend Billy Graham, publicly disagreed with Catholic pro-lifers saying, I believe in Planned Parenthood. A year after Roe versus Wade, the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant denomination and perhaps one of the most conservative institutions in the United States, affirmed that abortion should be legal. Even Barry Goldwater thought it should be legal. The religious right outside of the Catholic Church did not care about abortion until it decided to. And the reason it decided to was not because of some spiritual awakening, but because of politics and race. It started in 1971 with a Supreme Court case, not Roe versus Wade, but Green versus Connolly. In Green versus Connolly, the Supreme Court ruled that the IRS could remove tax-exempt status from religious organizations that practice segregation. Notably, this included numerous evangelical schools and colleges. Leaders of the religious right had been looking for something to galvanize evangelicals, and they saw an opening. It was the latest example of what they perceived to be the government infringing upon their religious freedom that they were being oppressed, they felt, as God-fearing, church-going, law-abiding Americans who the federal government was trying to prevent from practicing their version of Christianity, the kind that kept people of color from their schools. Now, they had tried to gain power by politicizing other issues, like prayer in schools, but they had found nothing that worked, not yet. And they knew that fighting for the right to keep black people out of their schools was not going to lead them back into power. It was too controversial. The country had moved on from that. So they needed something else, something more accessible, something less obviously divisive, something that could divert people's attention from their true goal, establishing a country where their racist values be practiced freely without the meddling of Washington and the federal government. By chance, in 1978, several Catholic pro-life candidates happened to win surprising victories over Democrats. It happened in Minnesota and Iowa and New Hampshire. And the leaders of the evangelical right took notice. They sensed that they finally had their cause. Maybe if they talked about protecting the unborn, 
It could be like a Trojan horse. Condemn abortion, gain power through it, and then you can push all the other policies that you really care about. Racial segregation, prayer in schools, dismantling public education, enforcing laws that enforce traditional families. Abortion became important to the religious right because they thought it would give them power. They thought they could win elections through it. It had little or nothing to do with the sanctity of life or religious principle. Now, I know that this might sound a little far-fetched, a little too easy and simple, maybe even like a conspiracy theory that leftists are peddling on social media. But legitimate scholars and historians are united about this. The evidence is there in meeting notes, in interviews, in memos. The decision was made by the leadership of the religious right to make abortion their issue and to fund it with deliberateness and intentionality. They did it so that the evangelical subculture could gain power in our government. Abortion was the vehicle that they would ride to establishing their Christian nation. I probably don't need to tell you that this history matters all the more today because Christian nationalism is more dangerous now than it has ever been. When progressives are shocked that the right doesn't care about democracy or overturning elections, it's because many of them really don't care. Their goal is not a pluralistic, democratic, diverse, free society. Their goal is a Christian America that lives by their particular Christian values, where they are no longer bound by anyone else's freedom. Democracy is a way of attaining those goals. So they play the election game. And they're happy to cheat and bend the rules because they don't respect their opposition. They are the heretics, and they don't respect the game. Let us make no mistake. Religious nationalists are not ambivalent about democracy. They are actively hostile to it. Democracy, diversity, freedom, and so many other core values that progressives think are American are perceived instead as dangerous and oppositional to their true goals. After all, democracy leads to empowering other voices, other values, other religious ideas. Diversity and freedom lead to what they understand as deviancy and sin and godlessness. They point to gay marriage, to trans folks in bathrooms, and women not knowing their place. That happens in a society that's a little too diverse and a little too free. The Christian nationalists, any government intervention that disrupts the status quo and traditional hierarchies is perceived as an affront to the Christian ideal and to God's natural order. Now, despite democracy having a slightly better night than many of us thought during the midterm elections, this threat is not going away. We see down in Arizona election denying 
Carrie Lake is refusing to concede her election. We see that Donald Trump is back at it again, running for president. And if you think that he would give up power if he gained it again, then I think that is an illusion. All of this might feel like politics, but it is also religion. The forces behind these anti-democratic candidates are religious nationalists and their allies. People like Lake and Trump, although they themselves may only marginally care about the theology, are happy to oblige and enforce the kind of policies that they would wish. Now here, we are Unitarian Universalists, and we are people of a different religious tradition entirely. And we need to call out and be aware that this is a toxic, ahistorical, and fundamentally anti-American theology. It is not conservative, even in the best kind of way, but a radical ploy to harness white, patriarchal, evangelical grievance to gain political power. It is the denial of the innate diversity, not only of the United States, but of humanity itself, born out of a perverse desire to control and regulate other people based on a very strict and narrow sense of right and wrong. We know how dangerous and toxic and abusive this is. We know it in our hearts, and we know it because we are rooted in our own religious faith, that unlike Christian nationalism, actually did help found this country. Even the ancient church, the pilgrims founded in 1620, is now proudly Unitarian Universalist. Ours is a religious tradition that, while not always perfect, living in a not always perfect country, was intimately involved in creating our open and pluralistic and free society, and has worked to improve it ever since. We must not allow Christian nationalists to dominate the American religious world, and not the secular one either, which they covet. We can find strength and inspiration in our Unitarian Universalist legacy, both in our proud history as a faith and our active present, because it reassures us that we are equal to anyone who claims the mantle of American religiousness. Let us strive then to be bold and loud and unafraid, affirming to anyone that this country is not what they say it is and never will be. For this, we hope and we pray and we give thanks. May it be so, and amen. Okay, great. Hello, Reverend Skyler. Thank you for joining me for getting the message after the message. <laughs> um, how are you today? I'm well, Deb. It's great to be with you. Thank you for uh, for doing this with me today. Of course. So happy to be here. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm a religious education assistant. Um, enjoying my time here and learning a ton. <laughs> um, all right. Let's hop right in. Um, why this message right now? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, this is my Thanksgiving service, uh, which, you know, is a bit of a stretch perhaps thematically from Thanksgiving to this, but I do think that there are um, there are some overlapping themes 
uh, about like what does it mean to um, dive into our heritage? Who, you know, what is our heritage? Um, what does it mean to um, to to honor where we come from? Um, I think Thanksgiving has all sorts of themes like that, um, and there's of course lots of problematic themes too. Um, but this idea of like, uh, I think especially given this moment of time that we're in, where we see so much. Uh, religious nationalism and religious heresy in many ways, and the pilgrims were certainly formed in that. I couldn't go into it too much without giving a, a mini lecture on the pilgrims, but <laughs> but they they uh, you know they fled uh, accusation of heresy from England. They ended up going to the Netherlands to um, uh, where they, in some ways, encountered a space very similar to New York City, which you know very diverse and pluralistic. And they and they realized that they would have a really hard time enforcing their strict religious identities. Uh, and so they they left and established, um, of course, the Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts, where they believed that they could essentially set the rules and create their own religious theocracy. Um, but the problem was, of course, that you know you can't really ward off that. And they you know they not everyone who came with them in the Mayflower was what they believed, um, and then more people would come, and so eventually that fell apart as well. Um, it sort of speaks to the futility of I think that sort of religious rigidity that that ultimately breaks down. Because mm -hmm. humanity isn't isn't contained in a, a certain strict religious path. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I loved all the like um, historical tidbits and knowledge that were sprinkled throughout. It's very informative and exciting to learn more about that. <laughs> um, what were your sources of for information or inspiration? Yeah, I, uh, there's a, a number of really wonderful books on Christian nationalism. There's one called The Power Brokers. Um, there's one I think called Bad Faith, and I don't have them with me right now, but they um, they're written by journalists and scholars and academics uh, who have dove into these these themes of religious nationalism and the, the their origins, their their current manifestations, and they're all they're all united basically in in understanding this narrative that religious nationalism is this this reaction against government intervention that happened in the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. rather than what they, pre they present it to be, which is this effort to reclaim some former glory of American Christianity, right? That has uh, escaped us with all of this, the change that we've experienced. So, mm -hmm. so I think that's very important to, for you know everyone to be aware of and that, that the scholars right are, are kind of unified around this I, I talk about it sounding maybe a bit like a conspiracy theory and I think it can sound <laughs> like that it's like well how convenient right, um, right. but you know that, that's what the history says um you know we we are a tradition that cares about history and and you know trust people who are experts in those things and um that's what they say mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I love it as like a counter narrative and like actually based in some study and like there's things to point to this and evidence of um, that's wonderful to hear from a pulpit and from a church <laughs> space <laughs> what would, what advice would you give people who may be a little bit discouraged or overwhelmed by the current narrative or presentation of how religion is being presented in politics right now yeah um it's a great question the i think there i think there is some hope in in the reality that most of the to the underhandedness of religious nationalists are not necessarily believed in by the general American public, even those who identify as people on the religious right. You know that 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 sort of the the Trojan horse mentality is is largely shared by a certain part of the leadership and, and sort of the elite of of the Christian religious right, um, not by sort of the the rank and file folks. Um, and so it's 
it's not a it's not a deception that exists in the sort of broad swath of the American population. I think you know I think most most people who are who are on the Christian right um, sincerely believe that abortion is wrong and sincerely believe that they you know in a Christian world or in their sense of what are what a, a world that respects Christian beliefs is would be open to other people. But um, so I think there's that. I also think that part of the hope and strength that we can get is as people who are not Christian nationalists or, or even Christian, right, as Unitarian Universalists, that we have our own tradition that is that is independent, that is has tremendous depth and history and legacy that we can be proud of and we can use to for ourselves. And that, you know, history is full of, you know, even if we do fall into a Christian nationalist nation, which is not you know, inconceivable, uh, and we, you know, we almost there in 2020, and like we could have done it again, and uh, things have turned out differently, and like who knows what 2024 will be like, and the future. That that history is full of 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 religions that are very much in the minority, um, or very much um, small within a large sea of something else. But those are often very dynamic and and very powerful in their own way, right? You know, Unitarians and Universalists were never the majority of religious belief in the United States um, or in the American colonies. And yet they have tremendous influence uh, Mm -hmm. in the cultural and uh, and political life of of this country going back, you know, since the beginning. Mm -hmm. So, So I think that that is, that's, there is not there's it is not a defeat to be small uh mm-hmm. it's not a defeat to feel like you're outnumbered by a vast christian majority that is often what the reality is and we can take inspiration from other smaller religions like like the jewish faith right and mm-hmm. we've outlasted you know millennia of people who have tried to persecute them right um and unitarian universalists uh, are not do not have that story, but have a different story, uh, and so I think we can we can take pride in that, um, and from our own religious roots, and, and feel good and feel comfortable that we are we are resting on shoulders of of, of others and each other, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, that we have roots that go down deep that can give us give us grounding, no matter what the wind is doing to our branches, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I love these insights. I, I also love like this thread of the entire message and what you're saying now is like there's always been pluralism and differences and like to like realize that and understand that we can live pluralis- pluralistically and democratically together. And just because there's more of one tradition, we don't have to be wiped out or <laughs> we can just all live amongst each other and like um, engage with each other and respect each other and actually be a society that promotes values and ideals where everyone is able to be at the table and share. So that's very mm-hmm. encouraging. Um, <laughs> my final question before we go is what were, were there any things that you couldn't include or you didn't include because of time or whatever, like the flow, <laughs> were anything left out that you were yeah. considering? Yeah, I really debated what I wanted to talk about more about pilgrims uh, and connected mm-hmm. more explicitly to Thanksgiving. And, you know, I, I felt like I said it before we were talking, I kind of shoehorned this into Thanksgiving. And, uh, <laughs> but I think there are real links of like pilgrims struggling with their own versions of heresy and, and, and mm-hmm. whatnot. Um, but I also think one thing that I, I didn't put in that I really debated fitting in was, um, you know, religious nationalists are not, they're, you know, they have allies in American society. And one of their biggest mm-hmm. allies um, are those the biggest proponents of capitalism and big business and corporations who, although may not care at all about Christianity, benefit from the same fundamental principle that government intervention 
uh, in the rights of people in the society uh, mm -hmm. is somehow a inherent threat to their functioning, right? So, so like Christian nationalist corporations don't want the government to have lots of rules for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so corporations and the religious right throughout American history, but it really started in the Great Depression around sort of pushing back against the New Deal stuff. Uh, corporations funded a lot of the, the right-wing talk radio um, and mm. saw that basically as a natural ally that, you know, these Christian, the Christian right wanted the government to get out of public schools, wanted to get out of prayer in schools, uh, and eventually, you know, abortion and other things and racial segregation. And corporations and capitalism also wanted government out of their business, right? They didn't want taxes. They didn't want, they didn't want, um, they didn't want regulations. And so that is a key relationship that I didn't have time to explore. And I think there could mm. be another sermon about that. But when mm -hmm. we look at like kind of the, 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 the sins that keep America back, uh, you know, I think that religious nationalism and and that that corporate desire to avoid government um, responsibility are, are two of the major pillars um, of sort of active uh, cultural institutional resistance to progress um, and, mm -hmm. and threaten to sink us into that um, that future that the Christian nationalists really want us to be in. Um, and they have a very natural partner in corporations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. Well, thank you so much for all of these insights. Um, very timely and very like thoughtful. Um, just wonderful to hear and like to get to get to discuss with you. So thank you so much for your reflection and work on that. Of course, Deb, thank you for talking to me and I appreciate it. I guess X is there too. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes, my little conversation. Guy. I hear another voice in the background, which is uh, amazing. So I'm glad that, that they could join us today uh, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Many blessings. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for chatting. <laughs> Thank you, Deb. I'll see you around. Appreciate see it. you around. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.